0: Read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to incubitably now. Extra extra read all
1: about it. Immigration is difficult to talk about because it touches on every aspect of life in the United States. From the economy to culture to ethnography, demographics, and even interpretations of our history. So talking about immigration, it's a discussion of every aspect of social science, about American history, and about what the United States is gonna be in the future.
2: That was Alex Narasta. Alex is the Director of Economic and Social Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. His popular publications have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Washington Post, and many other publications in the United States. Alex regularly appears on Fox News, MSNBC, Bloomberg, NPR, and numerous television and radio stations across the United States. So it must be quite the honor to join us here on Indubitably today.
0: It sure is. Thanks a bunch for having me. Thanks for joining us, Alex. I, I think what's interesting to me about the immigration debate is somewhere out there, there has to be the right number of immigrants to allow into the country. But I've literally never heard, whether from our politicians or mainstream media, a sincere discussion about trying to find that number. It's just jingoistic, it's dogmatic, and it's not very productive.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I think you're right in part and wrong in part. So I think you're absolutely right that the debate is jingoistic and dogmatic and people stick to their guns. But the idea that there is this sort of like right number, this Six point in time and space. I, I don't think is um, is right. I mean, I think the number of immigrants who should come to the United States depends and varies widely over time and based on circumstances. Um, you know, the number of immigrants who would come here at like the bottom of the Great Recession, right, in like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Is a lot different than the people who you know should uh, the number of people who should come here and say like you know today when there's 11 million job openings right? So I, I think the numbers really vary based on circumstances, and this is one of the problems with the system right now is it's so controlled legally by the government, where you have hard caps and enormous quantity of rules and restrictions. It's just not flexible. So whatever the right number is, the government doesn't have the ability to identify that number. And even if they did, considering the opinions of politicians and American voters, they wouldn't pick it even if they knew it.
2: Has there been anything batted around about what maybe an ideal number would be? I know that right now, a lot of the population growth in the united states is attributed to the fact that we have immigrants because the birth rate is declining so there seems to be a need for people to come here but it couldn't be everybody
1: yeah, that's right i mean it, it can't be everybody and even if the united states had a policy of open borders it wouldn't be everybody even if 7 billion people moving here would have you know slightly higher wages by doing so the cost of doing that over time would be so much higher that people wouldn't do it right i mean like wages are higher in california than they are in Louisiana, but not everybody from Louisiana is moving to California, even though they legally can't, right? There's nothing that's stopping them from doing so. So what are the magic numbers? Um, I'm not sure, but it's almost certainly higher than it is today. I mean, what you have right now going on is a system where there's you know, very restrictive legal immigration. You have you know, around 10 and a half to 12 million or so unauthorized or illegal immigrants in the United States. The vast majority of them are here, you know, working, uh, being employed by Americans. So there's obviously a demand from the US economy to hire these people. And there's not enough legal supply because we don't, the government doesn't allow it. So there's a large unlo- undocumented illegal immigrant black market in the country. So I would say, whatever that magic number is, it's uh, certainly higher than what it is legally allowed today. So the number of immigrants that's needed every year or that should come or or is ideal to come for our economy really does change based on the economic circumstances. And it's really not something that you, know, you or I or a consortium of smart people can really figure out with any kind of precision. Um, all I can really say is that it should be more.
0: I think part of the reason we can't find that number is because the right takes this absolutist Puritan approach that seems to suggest that the goal should be a complete elimination of illegal immigration. And certain talking heads seem to want no immigration whatsoever, legal or otherwise. And then on the left, they don't want to acknowledge that there are potential burdens that illegal immigration could potentially place on our infrastructure and places where immigrants might come into conflict with our citizens. So I think, Alex, you're right. The government doesn't have the ability to identify that number. But I think you're wrong. I think that you, me and Kelly throughout this episode are going to be able to find that perfect number for you.
1: But let me let me tell you that I, I, I bet if we were to talk about it, we'd probably get closer to that number than, um,
0: you know, the broad American public in a debate. That's probably right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I'll take that. So why don't in a in a pursuit of that goal, uh, why don't we give a structure for the episode today? Um, we'll start with an examination of the status quo to at least get us all on the same page of what things look like right now up front. Then we'll look at some practical implications of illegal immigration benefits versus costs, examine some of the legal options that are currently in place or being proposed. And then beyond practicalities, I think there's also some principled concerns that need to be considered.
2: Well, to start off our examination of the entirety of the issue of immigration which i think we're going to solve today i feel mm-hmm. it in my heart <laughs> we should probably address some of the more pertinent facts that pertain to the issue such as some of the numbers like we've been talking about of estimates for how many people are here illegally and what that could mean for for our population so it's hard to pin down this number obviously due to the undocumented nature of the people who are involved but Recent statistics say that potentially 11.5 million people are living in the U.S. unlawfully, which can include things like border crossings and things like overstaying visas. And obviously, these are people who are not necessarily evenly distributed in communities. There are some areas that are more attractive for people to head to if they're here without a legal authorization to be here.
0: And according to some estimates, the overwhelming majority of these individuals have lived here for over ten years. And that to me is interesting. i I'm not I guess I never really thought about the length of time that they're able to stay here. It seems like a long time to live in fear of deportation. <laughs> but it also seems that after ten years, you've pretty much assimilated and become part of the culture, the economy, et cetera, to where, even if you are not legally an American, you are certainly a part of the American fabric.
1: Yeah, that's certainly right. The reason why 60 to 70% have been here for as long as that is, you know, there was a large surge of illegal immigration in the 1990s and early 2000s, but the numbers grew from, you know, low, low single digit millions to about 12 million in 2007 or so, 2008. And then the growth really slowed down because of the Great Recession And then during the first three years of the Obama administration, a large increase in deportations that then sort of fell off. And since then, the numbers have remained fairly steady.
0: Which is interesting, too, because I think most people would think Obama pro-immigration. He's obviously liberal. But actually, there was an increase in just enforcement for illegal immigration during his administration.
1: Yeah, a vast increase, actually. If you take a look like annually at the deportation rate of illegal immigrants, so the percentage who were deported each year, um, it was the highest during the Obama administration of uh, any administration since 1960. And that includes the Trump administration. I mean, this is sort of the little known, you know, Trump, when it comes to enforcement of immigration laws inside of the United States, you know, identifying people for deportation. I mean, he wasn't very good at that. What he was good at, I mean, and you know, bad from my perspective, but what he was good at was blocking legal immigration. That's what Trump really attacked with his policies. Obama didn't really do anything on the legal immigration side. He sort of just let the system go. But for the first three years or so, um, he earned the nickname the deporter in chief uh, Mm -hmm. from a lot of people.
2: What may have motivated that since it seems like he was sort of out of step with a lot of other people in his party, why was he so law enforcement crazy when it came to uh, immigration?
1: Well, that's a great question. What, what I've always thought is he comes from sort of a, an older school sort of left wing appreciation of like uh, labor unions. And labor union policy and politics in the U.S. have been uh, nativist for a very long time. Now, nowadays, um, uh, labor unions will will say nice things about immigration, uh, but you dig down to what they actually support and uh, it ain't so nice. So I think they're in like a tough situation where they're trying to be part of the Democratic coalition. And the Democratic coalition now includes immigrants and Hispanics and Asians and people who are pro-immigration. But labor union is not really in their economic interest to be pro-immigration, but they need to be part of that coalition. So they're sort of like trying to go along to get along and it just is not going super well. And I think Obama was much more sort of in that sort of older democratic mold rather than the sort of more modern Democrat.
0: Maybe uh, Trump didn't have to deport people because his amazing wall kept them out in the first place super effectively. (laughs)
1: The wall is something that was an enforcement strategy that was very attuned to like 1993 (laughs) with what was going on. I mean, the thing was like 25 years out of date. Like I don't support a wall and I don't think it's very effective no matter what. But if you were going to build one, you should have built one like in the early 90s. That's when it probably would have made like, you know, most likely to make a difference. So Trump, like most things, right, he was like decades out of date when it came to the issue of immigration. But the thing he actually did have control over, right, because illegal immigration is a black market, right? The president doesn't have control over that that much. I mean, he can throw police officers at it, right? But I mean, he really doesn't have that much control. What he does have a lot of control over is the legal system. And that's where Trump made the biggest changes of uh, any single American president, I, I would argue, in American history, like in the course of a couple of years, to the legal immigration system.
2: I think that leads us nicely into... Talking about legal immigration itself, we definitely see far fewer people becoming naturalized US citizens. I think as time is going on, in uh, fiscal year 20, it was about 630,000 people. And then the previous year, it was closer to about, I think, 850,000 people who became naturalized US citizens.
0: That's a pretty substantial drop, like 200,000 people less in a year.
2: Mm -hmm. It looks like that was mostly attributable to the pandemic, which I think had the opposite effect when it comes to illegal immigration, as a lot of people were fleeing some pretty desperate circumstances in an undocumented fashion. But there were more administrative tie-ups, I guess, when the pandemic was in place that, that prevented more naturalization going the legal route to immigration.
0: I think it's important to talk about legal immigration because that's the trump card, no pun intended. Um, for conservatives when they criticize illegal immigrants, right? We all have heard the, why don't you just come here legally? So I think understanding what legal immigration looks like and what the path to citizenship as an extension of that looks like is probably important for us to address.
1: Yeah, I think it is the most important feature. Um, You know, The reason why people come illegally is that they can't come legally. There's no legal way to do so for the vast majority of them. Basically, the best way to come legally is through something called a green card. And what a green card is, it's also called lawful permanent residency, is it allows you to live and work legally in the United States. You can get any job you want, just about switch jobs, et cetera. Uh, You can't get welfare for the first five years, but after that, you can. And so there's basically four ways to get a green card. The first way is to be related to an American and to be sponsored to come in. That accounts for about 70% of the roughly 1 million people a year who come in on green cards.
0: Is that one where we get the idea of anchor babies from? No, anchor babies comes from
1: something called a birthright citizenship. So if you are born on US soil, unless you are the child of a diplomat or a soldier in an invading army,
0: mm-hmm. okay,
1: <laughs> you, yeah, those are the exceptions, then uh, you're an American citizen. So it's so extreme. Actually, the U.S. has the most radical policy on this in the world. If you are flying from Canada to Mexico on an airplane and you're Canadian and you don't have a layover in the United States and you go into labor and they have to do a medical emergency landing in the United States and you give birth, that kid is an American citizen. All
0: right. So
1: <laughs> it's, it's an extreme policy. I think it's a great policy for a lot of reasons. Uh, but there's really no other country in the world with that level of what's called birthright citizenship. So the idea would be that an illegal immigrant would come here, have a baby, uh, that baby would be an American citizen, and that American citizen would be like the anchor for that illegal immigrant is where that term comes from. But going back to the, the green card, so the second way to become uh, to get a green card is to be a very highly skilled worker, most of whom are sponsored by American firms. This is about 140,000 or so of those a year. The third route is to be a refugee or asylum seeker. Uh, These are people who have a well-founded fear of persecution in their home countries based on their um, membership in social organizations, their political beliefs, their race, their religion, and other types of uh, characteristics. Those numbers vary, but about 100,000 or so a year. And then the last one is something called the diversity green card or the diversity lottery. This is for people from countries you have to not be a criminal, you have to not be a security threat, uh, and have at least a high school education and be from a country that doesn't that sends fewer than 50,000 immigrants in the last five years combined. So you can't be like Mexican or Filipino or Chinese or Indian, but Most of them come from like sub-Saharan African countries or Central Asian countries, just smaller countries that don't send many immigrants. So that's basically a lottery. About 25 million people a year or so enter that lottery for about 55,000 bucks.
0: So the odds aren't great.
1: You know, they ain't good. So if you notice, like one of the categories I didn't mention was like a low-skilled worker who doesn't have any family here. And that's because that doesn't exist. There is no green card to come in as a low-skilled worker if you don't have family here. It just doesn't exist. So, you know, you apply this system backwards in time and virtually none of our ancestors would be here today because we all had at some point some ancestor who was low-skilled and didn't have any family here and was the first one to come. Now, in addition to those green cards, there are some low-skilled temporary visas for, uh, for workers to work in agriculture or like seasonal occupations, but they're all 10 months long. You have to go back. There's no way to get a citizenship on those because on the green card system that I mentioned, uh, you basically live and work here for five years. Don't commit any crimes. You can become an American citizen if you want to. And that's basically the two big ways to be able to come to the United States. And, um, this is just so different from the mythology that we learned about the United States, about how Ellis Island, if you just showed up and waited in line, you can come in which used to be true at some point. Ellis Island only turned back 2% of people. Nowadays, basically only 2 or 3% of people in the world even have a chance. And they used to call Ellis Island the Island of Tears for that reason. So if you call Ellis Island the Island of Tears for rejecting 2% of people, what do you call a system that rejects 98% of people?
0: America.
2: <laughs> yeah, so when people are levying that criticism of there are legal paths to citizenship, the people that they're telling that to That's not even a remote possibility, it sounds like. There's literally no way they could get into the country legally with all of the barriers that are set up.
0: So certainly, as far as a description of the system, it's undeniable that it is very, very difficult uh, and in some cases seemingly impossible to get into this country legally, which then of course incentivizes someone or, or forces someone who needs to or wants to get here to do it illegally. So that's the situation we're in. I think where the debate gets interesting then is, is that system justified, right? I, I, it sounds very restrictive, but I also can see that there are reasons behind those restrictions. Like we mentioned, um, there, there are types of people, you know, Alex, you, you mentioned low-skilled workers without any family here, who would be more likely to put a strain on resources in this country. That's obviously the motivation behind making it harder. Or impossible for them to get here. Whereas some of the high skill workers that provide a service towards companies who are sponsoring them, it's in our best interest. So I think the next thing that we want to do in the episode is look at exactly what is the balance between the benefits of immigration versus the burdens that it causes. And why don't we start with an idea? And this is maybe the most cited argument: the strain on government resources. Uh, do immigrants? Let's start with illegal immigrants. Do illegal immigrants put a strain on the resources of our government enough to justify us keeping them out, deporting them, building a wall, et cetera? Absolutely
1: not. So uh, illegal immigrants in the United States, with very few exceptions, have no access to means-tested welfare benefits. They have no access to entitlement benefits in the United States, Uh, but they also pay taxes now about... Depending on the estimates, 55 to 75% um, file taxes and have money taken out of the paycheck uh, for benefits that they can't get, which um, is a good deal for the U.S. taxpayer. They are also more likely to work. The native-born Americans have a higher labor force participation rate. Um, They're much more mobile, so they move the jobs. They're almost never unemployed because they can't afford to be unemployed. And they consume goods and services produced by other Americans. Creating more jobs, more labor demand, increasing production in the United States. So, when we take a look at, say, taxes paid federally and paid on the state level in both situations, depending on the state, but federally, the taxes paid by illegal immigrants are greater than the cost of the value of the benefits they receive. Um, and in most states, that's also the case.
0: So, I'm, I'm curious then, it sounds like you're saying that each individual immigrant is net positive to the economy. So, is there a, a point of diminishing returns for that? Or would that just suggest that if each individual immigrant contributes, then the more immigrants we have, the better off the economy is going to be?
1: So, there could be a point of diminishing returns. If, the, if that point is reached, then uh, fewer immigrants will come. So, it's like a self regulating system. It's like a sale. If there's a sale at Walmart for like t shirts, because they need to get rid of them and they sell enough t shirts and they raise the price. Fewer people are going to come and buy it, right? So if the returns diminish, then fewer people are going to come. So we're not anywhere near that point right now. I mean, like not even close. And people are generally a blessing uh, for economies, right? And this isn't to say that every single illegal immigrant is a blessing, right? I mean, there's 11 to 12 million, right? Like some of them are murderers. Some of them are criminals, those individuals aren't good, right? Just to be clear about that. But in terms of diminishing returns, I mean, we haven't seen a situation where there are too many people.
2: Isn't there a possibility, though, that the diminishing returns would only be on the American side of the equation and the the people who come illegally would still reap all the benefits? And this is the exact scenario that I think a lot of people are afraid of due to some of the The common rhetoric around illegal immigration is that we are going to bear the costs of this and there won't be any disincentive for people to come and bring more and more people at the detriment of all of us.
1: So that's an interesting point because uh, the empirical academic literature on how uh, immigrants affect wages in the United States, there's two like consistent findings. One is that immigrants in the U.S. slightly raise the wages of native-born Americans by just a little bit. Not by much, but just a little bit. But they consistently lower the wages of other immigrants. So it it really is like a self-correcting mechanism, where if the benefits of immigrating to the United States decrease, fewer people will come.
0: I'm familiar with the theory that you're bringing up—the race to the bottom, where people compete, and if one person's willing to do a job for twenty dollars, then the next one comes in is willing to do it for eighteen, willing to do it sixteen. But I want to push back a little bit on the idea of self-correction because you know even $16 $14 $12 if it's still more than what they'd be making back home i still think there's an incentive for them to come here and at a certain point that's going to tip below the benefits that we've talked about and and the other phenomenon i think that that could potentially happen here is just the idea of hope right when when somebody leaves their country to go to the united states do you think that they know this is how much money I'm going to be able to make there? Or do they just have a sense of, if I get there, things will be okay?
1: The amount of information shared between immigrants in the U.S. and their friends and family overseas, I mean, really is enormous. Mm. So if it got down to the point where the wages that they could expect here relative to their home countries starts to even out or maybe even dip, then they definitely will stop coming.
2: One topic on the issue of the economics question is that a lot of people who do come to the United States and work here do send quite a bit of their money home to the family that couldn't come to the United States. And in that case, is there an economic detriment? Does the benefit of having these folks in the United States diminish when there are remittances involved?
1: No, uh, it, it doesn't diminish at all. I mean, one of the things to realize is that those remittances come back to the United States in the form of exports. So given the way the international economics works, dollars that are sent abroad have to come back to the United States eventually in the form of American exports there. So it might be that an immigrant will send money back to Honduras, like $1,000. That family in Honduras will buy uh, soap, maybe education. The soap company down there will use it to buy a machine produced in the United States to make more soap. So that money will definitely, like comes back. And indeed has to come back the way that international finance and international economics work. So it's, it's a great system, but we also get the benefit of that worker's goods and services produced in the United States, right? Like wealth is not represented by dollars and cents. It's represented by the quantity of goods and services that we have access to. And immigrants here increase the quantity of those goods and services.
2: Is that really going to be sustainable over the long term, though, with the diminishing manufacturing sector in the United States? I think we're solidly turning into a service-focused mm-hmm. economy, and that seems to have a, a less um, viable chance at being internationally profitable.
1: <laughs> so for one thing, like the value of the manufacturing sector is not decreasing. It's just that many fewer people are working in it because it's getting so much more efficient the number of workers today it takes to make a widget in an american factory is many fewer workers than they used to be but the number of widgets being made is a lot higher like it's exaggerated the decline in manufacturing in the united states but there are also we, we do export a lot of services i mean financial goods and services are an enormous part of the economy not to mention um, you know american like engineering and design you know ipad and electronics and all these other sort of high tech gadgets <laughs> To, to, to show my age, right, are um, designed in the United States and serviced, and then they're made in dozens of countries around the world.
0: It's interesting you bring up uh, manufacturing because we don't have time to go into this in this particular episode, but I think it's worth pointing out that if the concern is immigrants coming in and potentially distorting uh, the economy, there should be a lot more concern about artificial intelligence and the impact that robots and automation has in industries and the effect that might have on U.S. citizen jobs than probably immigration. And if you want to hear about that, we did do an episode on artificial intelligence. Quick plug before we move on to our next subject, which is going to be, I think we've covered the economy here. Let's talk about, Alex, you mentioned the first immigrant comes over and then following immigrants, they come and they, they tend to assemble around that first immigrant, and this turns into communities. And I think this is a big criticism. Just culturally and socially, there's a lot of concerns for immigration, that the United States doesn't work like a melting pot anymore, but rather when immigrants come here, rather than assimilating, they create their own segregated communities, they continue to speak their own language, et cetera. And this just causes for a a kind of cultural disconnect. Between immigrants and the, the native Americans, not the real native Americans, but we know what I'm trying native to say. Native born
1: Americans.
0: <laughs> the native born Americans that have, uh, you know, in the last 200 years claimed this country to be their own. Nobody before us gets the country. Nobody after us gets the country. We just happen to be here in that sweet spot where we can claim ownership, basically.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, economists try to study this a lot, like this sort of uh, issue of uh, assimilation. And you know the best measurement I've seen of how to take a look at is by Jacob Bigdor, who's a buddy of mine at the University of Washington. And he basically says, like, okay, assimilation is when the immigrants or the descendants of the immigrants are basically indistinguishable by natives in terms of their language, religiosity, civic participation, family size, income, and education. And when you take a look at it that way, by the third generation. The children of immigrants are indistinguishable from longer settled Americans and all those counts. And third generation is the grandchildren of the
0: immigrants. Even the ones that have segregated communities. Yes.
1: So what happens is a lot of times you'll have, you know, immigrants come in and they'll live in a community that is, you know, nearly homogeneous immigrant or of that immigrant ethnic group. They'll have kids in that community. But what they don't tell you is like the first generation, you know, there's intermarriage in every generation. So first generation Hispanic immigrants, you know, the immigrants themselves, 8% marry non-Hispanic, not that much. Second generation, though, it's 32% marry non-Hispanic. Third generation, 57%. So there's this enormous amount of assimilation integration that happens through intermarriage because the products of those marriages, you know, the children generally that are born uh, from these marriages, you know, they're halfies, or they're quarters, you know, of, of the immigrant ethnic group. And they usually, you know, it's just, they sort of melt in, like they use the old stereotype. And, and, and furthermore, a lot of people sort of move away. So a lot of the reasons why immigrants coalesce in these different communities is because it helps them get started. You know, it's familiar surroundings, familiar people, familiar language. It's hard to learn English, but the kids don't really have that problem. They grow up here. They speak English. So they have more opportunities in different parts of the country and different communities. And they make more money and they move to those opportunities.
0: So related to culture, uh, at least in this country, very closely is also politics. Mm -hmm. And another concern, I think, with uh, an increasing number of immigrants coming into the country, and obviously illegal immigrants aren't able to vote, but you know whether they become citizens eventually, or this is a concern that has to do with legal immigration, or we talked about anchor babies before that got in through quasi legitimate means, but now they're citizens. Um, there's certainly a shift towards, well, let, let's call it what one side would call it, a liberal takeover of our political system by immigrants. Is is that something we should be concerned with? Like people coming from outside of the country redefining the way that this country is run?
1: Well, no, it shouldn't be in a sense because when you take a look at the political and policy opinions of immigrants and compare them to native-born Americans, they are shockingly similar. You know, this is good and bad. It's good in the sense that they're not going to radically change things when they vote. It's bad because they don't have better opinions than we do. So um, (laughs) it's really not that big of a different, you know, we're seeing trends now where, you know, majority of immigrants who vote are, uh, do vote democratic. uh, But they're generally more conservative Democrats and uh, their kids and grandkids basically become as Republican and democratic as the rest of the population.
0: That's interesting. So I know that there is definitely a shift when it comes to age and, you know, younger generations are trending liberal. Do you think that age has more of an impact on, you know, which side of the political spectrum they end up on rather than, you know, cultural background or immigration status? Definitely.
1: Age and education
0: are much better
1: predictors of politics than our ethnic background, uh, with the exception of being black, you know, being black American is a different, there's a lot more going on there. But for like, immer- like recent immigrant heritage and immigrant heritage in the United States, yeah, age and education are much better predictors. So, you know, you, you have a lot of people, conservatives and sometimes Democrats when they're trying to be provocative, right? We'll talk about how demographics are destiny. And it's just a matter of time in a less white America where the Democrats take over. And that's just I've been calling bullshit on that for years because on the same time, you do have a more diverse America. You also have an older America and older people vote more conservative. And every group of older people votes more conservative, just about across the board. So it's it's really going to end up being not that much of a difference, frankly, in terms of this. Like you might have some local areas where there's a difference here or there, right? But overall, if you were trying to engineer like a mass liberal takeover of American politics, or relatively liberalizing immigration in the 1960s is not an efficient means to do
0: it and probably won't even achieve it. Just looking at the numbers. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about illegal immigrants and the effect that they have. But what's interesting to me is illegal in quotes is not a natural state of being, right? It's artificially constructed. Laws change. So the same person in the same circumstance can morph from being an illegal person to a legal person, right? So I think the next thing we could cover here that would be interesting is what are some of the ways we either do or could legitimize people's residence in the United States? I think we, we've mentioned legal immigration and Alex talked to us already about the ways in which we can immigrate here legally. Another area I think is really interesting is the concept of amnesty. What do we do about illegal immigrants that are already here?
1: Yeah, so I'm a big supporter of amnesty uh, or legalization, whatever you want to call it. Uh, We've had about six different amnesties over American history for immigration. Um, You know, an amnesty is basically a recognition that the law uh, doesn't work and we need to basically start over with this. We've also had amnesties for tax laws, for gun laws, for all different types of things at different times in the United States, as we should uh, when the laws become unenforceable or create a lot more problems. than. You know, and an amnesty would fix that. The fundamental thing we want to change is to make it easier for people to come here legally, which would reduce the inflow of illegal immigrants or hopefully eliminate it. And then after that happens, um, or maybe at the same time, we just legalize all the people who are here unlawfully, you know, with some exceptions for people who are serious criminals and people who should be in prison and things like that. National security threats, you know, with those individual exceptions. And then we just do it as many times as we need. To get that population down as low as it possibly can be, because there's no reason, I think, to relegate a large number of people into the black market based purely on where they were born and because they were seeking opportunity.
0: It's interesting. This sounds most similar to me to uh, people who have been convicted of marijuana related crimes, right? We've decided kind of in mass that we want to legalize the sale of marijuana. And then at the same time, we have thousands of people in prison for selling marijuana, which is now legal, uh, it doesn't make sense to leave them in jail when the laws have changed like that. Yeah,
1: that's right. Another victimless offense too, selling marijuana or consuming it versus crossing an international border in violation of labor market regulations. I mean, both are victimless offenses, both make people better off. These are offenses where there's voluntary interactions between individuals. Um, There's no violence.
2: As long as there's no violence, force, or fraud, I don't have a problem with it. But I have a question about that because if you were to declare amnesty, and we've got 11.5 to 12 or so million people who would be affected by this, that's 12 million people who can suddenly use resources through social programs and who are no longer working at sub minimum wage levels. So, on a practical level, whether or not it's the right thing to do, isn't that going to have some economic impact to the way that they've currently been paying into a system that's basically been exploiting their labor? So
1: there will be some slight uptick in some social benefit consumption and consumption of welfare and things like that, but not really that much. And their wages would go up slightly, which is pretty good, but it basically removes the threat of state action against these individuals. And if we're worried about them using welfare, Say you get a green card and you can't use welfare for 20 years or until you become an American citizen, right? Like if we're really worried about that, just to say that and say, okay, you're legal now. Uh, You don't have to worry about being deported if you get a traffic stop, but you can't use food stamps. I will guarantee that any illegal immigrant right now who hears that deal will jump for joy. That sounds like a great deal to me. Everybody wins. They get to work legally, get rid of the fear and then the, the the fear that some americans have that these folks are going to consume a lot of welfare that goes away. So there's a lot of different options for reform that could be done that would make everybody better off except for a handful of nativists who really want to use the power of the government to ruin people's lives for reasons that don't make a lot of sense.
0: Realistically, we've been talking about a lot of practical concerns, but i think that the vast majority of people and we sort of teased this at the beginning of the episode form their opinions about immigration on principled reasoning. Uh, I mean, reasoning might be a a little bit of a, you know, generous term here, but on principled, uh, (laughs) you know, stances. And so I think the last thing we should consider here before before closing this debate out is to move from practical into some of the principled concerns that immigration brings up.
2: Immigration seems to be a perfect storm of legal standards. Feelings and then ethical standards or philosophical standards all coming together into this strange blender of policy.
0: Mm, let's let's talk about our feelings.
2: <laughs> well, I think that feelings are a really big part of the immigration discussion because many people have a sense of what is owed to them by society and what they feel is correct, even if it doesn't follow a lot of rational bases.
0: Mm hmm. And this idea of a society owing you something really by virtue of you being born there, I think is most preeminently counteracted by potentially the most relevant philosophy to this particular episode, which would be the lottery of birth.
2: The lottery of birth is a philosophical thought exercise that people can use to see whether or not the treatment they are inflicting upon others or the things they expect from society are actually fair. If you could have been born any other person in any other circumstance, would you want to be treated the same as those other people who aren't you are being treated? If you, if you say, no, I would prefer not to be born into a slum. Maybe there's an ethical obligation to end slums.
0: Yeah, and I think the word lottery here is important because it is so accurate. We don't control where we were born. You you could make an argument that your parents have some control over where you are born, and by virtue of you being their child, you deserve the fruits of their labor. So I do think there's an interesting argument there. But beyond that, the idea if you happen to be born ten miles on the wrong side of an imaginary line. Uh, Your life is going to look fundamentally different than somebody else who was born on the, you know, quote, correct side of that line. You won the lottery or you lost the lottery.
2: And a striking part of the immigration debate is that so much of what happens is determined by what happens when people are not legal adults. They don't consent to where they were born and they often don't consent to where they were taken by their families if they were involved in border crossings. There are a lot of people involved in immigration who are doing so unknowingly or unwillingly.
0: And I think what's important here is that then as a byproduct of this random event, right? You were randomly born in this particular place. Now you have legal status, financial circumstances, and really value assigned to you based on something completely out of your control and completely arbitrary.
1: Yeah, the value of uh, humanity or human rights does not depend on where people are born uh, or where they're from. They come from being a human being, right? So ethically, borders are irrelevant and nationality is irrelevant. And I don't owe any more to a stranger who happens to be American than I owe to a foreigner around the world. But in the same token, it doesn't mean that I have the right to take something more from a foreigner than I do from an American, right? So I don't think our duties and rights and responsibilities uh, depend on, uh, ethically anyway, depend on nationality or borders.
0: You know, I think what's interesting about what you say there, Alex, that's a little bit different from the rest of the conversation is the idea that we don't owe anything to other Americans, because as much as the immigration system and the borders that we've erected uh, keep people out, and that's kind of where our discussion is focused so far, there's also a certain sense of obligation to people within those borders. Right? We we talked about taxation, we talked about welfare systems, and if you reside or you were born within those borders, now apparently I do have an obligation to assist you in some way, while that line means that I don't have that same obligation to somebody else.
2: The constraints of considering the entire world, our neighborhood versus considering our communities and our country, our neighborhood means that our obligations only extend as far as our borders do, which is just easier to help the people who are the most proximate to you. It is Easier now to help people around the world than it has ever been, but it is still more difficult to feed people south of the equator than it is to feed people in my own country. So, borders are, if nothing else, a construct built of convenience. Ah,
0: I mean, I get that Alex is right that these borders shouldn't matter, but dang it, now Kelly is right also. And then, like, just functionally, you know, I think we could take it one step further than what you're talking about, Kelly, is we can't even take care of all Americans. You know, it's it's not like our social systems that we've been discussing throughout the episode. It's not like they work for everybody, right? We let plenty of Americans through the cracks. And as much as, you know, Alex, what you're saying about borders not assigning value or obligation to people makes sense. Part of me, it just it just seems so logical that If we have a system of Americans being funded and and supported by Americans, if we have to prioritize somebody because we don't have the money for everybody, it just makes sense to prioritize the people within that system first. And maybe if we ever get to a world where we've taken care of all of their needs, then we can start looking outside of our borders or expanding who's included in our borders to get them taken care of also.
2: If the justification for prioritizing people within our own borders is that people have paid into the system who live here and therefore they should benefit from it, then I don't understand how birthright citizenship also fits in that framework because being born in a specific place is not an accomplishment or a contribution to that society.
0: (laughs) In most cases, it's probably a detriment. But I think the idea there is that eventually they're going to be paying into it when they start working and and paying taxes and contributing to our various social schemes.
2: Is that really the basis for taking care of people off of their potential contributions to society? I don't think that there is a guarantee that they will pay into society. It does not seem to be consistent with the way that a lot of other... Transactional relationships work in in countries like the United States.
0: That is true. So if you're born here randomly, you're automatically owed the support of the system and you take that through school when you're a kid. And then I guess you don't have to do anything. You don't have to work when you're out of school and you could go immediately onto welfare. And so um, if the argument against immigrants coming in and you know, say it's an immigrant that doesn't work and then Taps into our systems, that would be bad. I guess there isn't really much of a difference between them and and a citizen who was born here, other than again, going back to that idea of the lottery of birth.
2: Right. If I was born here and I was educated through taxpayer funded school systems and I was taken care of by a government that created laws and protections for me, and then the second I turn 18, I decide that I'm going to go live in another country, I don't owe. My tax dollar funded life back
0: to America. That's actually kind of interesting. So let's take the opposite. I know that one of the things we haven't really talked about, but one of the ways that people gain citizenship or start the path to citizenship in the country is by joining the military. So if you have an immigrant who comes to the United States, starts working, starts paying taxes, or an immigrant that comes to the United States, signs up for the military, defends the country, they deserve less. From that country than somebody who does none of those things, but just happened to be born here? It does seem kind of strange.
2: There are some countries that don't have automatic birthright citizenship. And I do wonder how they organize themselves and determine citizenship for people who were born on their soil. But it does seem like there needs to be an additional demonstration of effort and willingness to contribute to, to society in order to become a fully vetted citizen in a lot of those instances. And in America in particular, it's the arbitrary standard of what soil you happen to be on at the time.
0: We could have a yearly hunger games and anybody that survives gets to be a citizen.
2: I contend that we actually could take care of everybody within our borders easily if we just allocated resources differently. And if that's the case, what would fundamentally be stopping us from helping people around the world other than a border?
0: I think that's because you're probably the most optimistic Scorpio <laughs> that I know.
2: I don't think so. I think what I'm saying by posing that question is people will always find a reason to deny help for people that are not like them. And borders are the reason currently. And there are many other Things that could be the reason in the future: political differences, religious differences, all of the things humanity has always relied upon to separate us from the other.
0: Well, and it's easy to point out obligations that we have. Let's assume for a second that borders do and should exist, and we do have an obligation to people within those borders because of uh, you know a social contract, because they've paid into the system, and now they're owed by that system. You know, various obligations that I think you can logically and principally point out. But even in a world like that, I do think an argument could be made that we still have an obligation to citizens outside of those borders, um, particularly when you look at the foreign policy actions and just stances that the United States has around the world and very specifically in Central and South America.
2: Absolutely. There is so much of the geopolitical power and wealth that countries such as the United States would not have without the exploitation of other countries. And there seems to be a building ethical case for making some sort of reparations, for lack of a better word, for all of the colonial and neocolonial actions that this country has taken around the world.
0: Right. And, and again, if we look specifically to Central South America, I think there's some really obvious ones. The first one being uh, the war on drugs. And there is a significant number of people who, whether it's as refugees or people looking to escape from the economic situation that the war on drugs and warlords just, and the hold that they have over various governments, right, when they look to escape from those things, They're coming to the United States. And if we had such a large part in creating those circumstances that they're fleeing, do we then have an
2: obligation to provide them an escape? I do think that there is a mounting justification for at least permitting people to flee to our country if they are experiencing violence that we more or less created through our international malfeasance.
1: And I think you can make, at least ethically, a stronger case that uh, the U.S. government owes some damages to the people who have been locked out of the country. And I don't even mean like people who have been, you know, who live overseas in a country that's been bombed by the United States, but people who want to come here and sell their labor and they're Americans who want to buy it. And that immigrant could make 10 times more than what they're making in their home country. And the U.S. government says no. I mean, that's worth a lot of money that consigns a lot of people to perpetual poverty in their home countries from which they have no hope of escaping except by leaving. So, in some ways, you know, you have people who are escaping a burning house that's on fire. They have the means to escape it. They're walking through the front door, and the US government is say, standing there being like, uh uh uh, get back in the house. Who's responsible now? If that house burns down, that person dies. You know, in some sense, of course, the fire is to blame, right, or whoever set the fire. But in another sense, if you stop people from being able to save themselves, you're also responsible for what happens to them. So I think you can make a very strong ethical argument that the U.S. government and any government that stops the uh, you know voluntary and peaceful movement of people across borders um, shares. A, a, has committed enormous ethical crimes against uh, individuals who are just engaging in mutually beneficial and voluntary exchanges.
0: So there's certainly strong principled arguments suggesting that we should lean towards a more open immigration system. But those principles don't really matter if the stability of our country is compromised by this proposed influx, whether it's opening borders or an amnesty system, what have you. To the point that we would lose the ability to provide the opportunities that people are coming here for, as well as potentially lessen our ability to care for ourselves. So, I don't know, at the end of this, taking all of these factors into consideration,
2: what do we think? Initially, I think that borders are one of the biggest contributors to societal discord nationally and internationally. And as a part of the discussion about immigration, but also thinking about larger geopolitical implications, I think borders have no business existing. Beyond that, knowing that I don't think many countries are willing to give up their borders and perhaps would like to expand them further. I think that the ideas of nationalism and birthright citizenship and things like that need to begin to erode. I think that immigration should be Free flowing across borders, that people shouldn't need to prove themselves in order to be accepted into countries. And that's not just the United States expecting certain things in order to become a citizen. A lot of other countries have educational requirements in order to get citizenship. You have to provide value to their country to get citizenship. And that undermines the inherent worth that humans have, that any human deserves to have protections of governments that care about them, deserves to have freedom from violence. So when it comes to immigration, we need to make it at minimum less difficult for people to get into a a place where they feel safe and they feel like they can actually live a life that they deserve. And uh, hopefully we'll also begin to dismantle the idea of countries as a whole and live in a beautiful borderless world and all those little lines that are on the map when I fly over the country will disappear.
0: But if all those lines disappear when I'm flying home from Texas, how will I know when I've escaped?
2: <laughs> yeah, without your ability to look at your phone when you're flying, you have basically no idea where you are. Without those lines on, on the ground, to will tell you where you are.
0: <laughs> all right. So those are Kelly's thoughts. Um, Alex, I know you've probably spent a lot more time thinking about this than either of us. I'm, I'm definitely curious to hear at the end of the episode what you have to say
1: immigration is one of the most important global economic and social policies that we can think about the effect of liberalizing immigration on the global economy and on people's well-being is likely larger than any other single policy change because the wages and benefits of people moving from poor countries to rich countries is much vaster than any other conceivable policy option or change that has been compliment, uh, contemplated by people. So if we want to think about you know, policies in the world that are big, that will do more than any other policy to reduce poverty and increase prosperity in the developed world, uh, immigration should be the first, second, and third policy option that we should consider uh, when it comes to liberalizing the economy and when it comes to increasing uh, global well-being.
0: Thank you for that, Alex. It's, it's been really awesome to have you on the show. For our listeners, if you'd like to look more into Alex's work, he actually has two books, which he has co-authored. One is Wretched Refuse, The Political Economy of Immigration and Institutions. And the second is Open Immigration, Yay and Nay. And he also has a booklet, that's titled The Most Common Arguments Against Immigration and Why They're Wrong. And we will be linking that on both our Facebook and our Twitter accounts. So you can look through that also. It's a really well put together piece of research. It's probably the most concentrated and succinct source you can find for material to answering questions you might have on this topic. So I would definitely recommend it. Um, Alex, thanks again for joining us today. Really appreciate your time.
1: Thanks a bunch, guys. And it was really my pleasure. I, I had a lot of fun.
2: Thank you. And as always, we do like to end with a quote. And today I have one from a president who was vetoing a restriction on immigration in 1897.
0: Ooh, let me guess. Ooh, 18. Oh, now you said the date. Now I'm going to look dumb. if Take away the date. Let's just, just say a president. And that way I can guess without looking dumb when I don't know who was the president that year.
2: Okay. So this quote came from a president in a year.
0: OK, all right, let me guess. Let's hear the quote, and then I'll guess.:
2: OK. It is said that the quality of recent immigration is undesirable. The time is quite within recent memory when the same thing was said of immigrants who, with their descendants, are now numbered among our best citizens.
0: Hmm. I'm going to say that that was, uh, my presidential history is not good." Zachary Taylor. Wow, you can never be on Jeopardy. <laughs> Damn it. Um, Donald Trump.
2: Well, that timeless quote, which I think is very applicable to how people converse about immigration now, about 130 years later, was from President Grover Cleveland. And it's just something to think about.